hello, hello, and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And this week I have another special guest, someone who I was blown away by, literally mic drop, mind blown, all that kind of stuff when I first heard her speak. And that is Dr. Felicia Pullen, who I am going to let um, Dr. Pullen introduce herself. <laughs> Thank you, Karis. First of all, I have to say, I love the name of your show. I am certainly unapologetically Black. I didn't know I was a unicorn until we met. And um, I would love to see more of us at these tables so that we can just say unapologetically Black, right, without the unicorn. Um, so yeah, I am Dr. Felicia Pullen, born and raised in Harlem. Um, that's where my heart is. That's where my work is. I have a PhD in uh, social work policy development, and my work is centered on my Black people. I wanted to understand who we are, how we got to where we are in terms of recovery and use and how Harlem came into play and all of that. And so I had a lot of fun in my research project, um, but I'm also a mom of two children. Um, and, you know, it's when I say that, it often brings a little bit of pride and sadness to that because I know that my children were also impacted by my use as I am also a woman in recovery. So my intersectionality just crosses through, you know, many different facets. And, you know, I'm just happy to be here and share this platform with you to talk about it a little bit. Awesome. Thank you for that introduction. And yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure about the unicorn bit. I mean, I, where that came from, so you know, right, is that, of course, people said, oh, well, first they said, um, you know, you're so different. You're so, you're not like other people. And somebody had to say, you know, they're calling you your, their magical Negro, right? And I'm like, what? <laughs> their magical what? And they yeah. said, yeah, um, you know, you're their magical Negro. And I'm like, I don't want to be anybody's magical Negro. She goes, well, you're, you're far more like a unicorn just on your own, just, you know, you're just kind of like this very unique person. But I'm finding that there are more and more of these, what I would call unique people. So are we unicorns or are unicorns not as rare as we think? Which one is it? I'm not quite sure. So yeah, but uh, unapologetically Black, oh yeah, bring it on. And that's what I loved about hearing you. You know, we were at an event and um, I wasn't sure myself what I felt comfortable sharing on a panel about my experiences within the quote unquote, consumer survivor, ex-patient peer movement. That's, you know, kind of all of these terms. I've always found it a difficult place to navigate as a, as a Black person, because I don't see many people like me, even when we talk about the dearth of folks, especially in leadership or involvement, it doesn't seem to change. There seems to be an acknowledgement, oh yeah, that's so, but it doesn't seem to change. And I thought this was an opportunity maybe to talk about that, to talk about how that could change. But then all of a sudden, I got a little nervous about getting up in front of a bunch of people yeah. and basically talking about it. But who talks before me but you? <laughs> <laughs> and you just opened that gate. You were like, swing. The gate was wide open. And I was like, okay, she just gave me permission. She doesn't know she gave me permission. She doesn't even know me but she gave me permission. So 
You were talking about your research study, I believe. The essence of it, though, was about, I don't want to say disparities, but you can use your words to describe that. Yeah, um, I want to just take a half a step back and say thank you. You and I didn't have that discussion about, you know, me preceding you because I was blown away by you and the fact that I was able to, you know, put some footprints in the sand before you. Thank you for sharing that with me. You are badass. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, be unapologetic. Go ahead, go for it. <laughs> you, you, you're a badass, and so there is um, a lot of mutual love and respect here on this platform, and I wanted you to know that too. But just to circle back, so you you know, when I was doing my research, I um, I wanted to hear from my people, and so the part that I didn't share was that I'm also the founder and CEO of this beautiful gem in Harlem called The Pillars. And so The Pillars is a non-medical model for recovery. So we know that there are multiple pathways for substance use recovery. And what we do are holistic practices. It's yoga and meditation and acupuncture and Reiki. But I have like these amazing people that come through, some of them every day because they use that space as a recovery center, there's a woman who has 51 years in recovery that comes to our space and she volunteers to do a bereavement group. So it's all this mutual aid in there. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to have difficulty finding individuals who would be willing to share about being Black and being in recovery. But I was more questioning how they would be able to share with me the impact of 30 years of racialized drug enforcement policies on their ability to attain certain things while in recovery. And so that's kind of how this project began. And I call it a project because it did not end with my dissertation. I am not done. This is my life's work and um, it has grown since. But one thing that became really crystal clear in this process was that we need to really start using different language when we talk about determinants of health. So, you know, we often say, oh, the social determinants of health. And for me, it feels very victimizing in terms of the language, because let's start looking at the political determinants of health. Let's understand how policies are impacting people and that disparate numbers, right? They're impacting Blacks differently than they're impacting whites. And that was the piece that I really hoped that everybody walked away um, with as I began to look at these racial disparities and especially in overdose deaths, especially in the communities that were most in poverty. So there was this intersection of race and and poverty and geography um, and, and policy on the recovery and what we see as disparate death rates among Blacks and Latinos. Wow. Okay. Snaps, claps, two thumbs up. If I had three thumbs, I'd put the third thumb up. But I mean, it, that's that's exactly the conversation that I think, you know, as a main, as a whole, we need to have more of. As I also think about our, our work and, and though, you know, my trajectory has been primarily mental health and, and I don't see, quite frankly, me, me Kara Smyrick, it's just you know, 
I see, you know, health is health. And we start to break down these kind of like silos of mental health, physical health, substance, like these are the silos when in fact, many people will be in um, quote unquote, all of these systems, if you will. Right. But, but unfortunately we bifurcate, trifurcate, quadruplicate, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then we don't do, do very, a very good uh, job of talking and working together. And I think even in our movements as a peer and recovery movements, we have not done a good job of talking and working together because we're fighting for the same thing in essence. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I agree. And, you know, I struggled with my mental health for a very long time. And I think, you know, it's, it's so funny because in this moment, as I say that, and I hear myself saying that, I think sometimes we just say mental health so quickly without really understanding, like my mental health. I was suicidal at 13. I saw my first like bout of depression, like serious depression at 22. And then was, you know, uh, suicidal again at 40. So, but not to say that there was nothing in between all of that, right? There was Mm -hmm. a lot of substance use and misuse to cope with some of those feelings and the anxiety and the depression that I was Mm. suffering under. Mm. And and I think you are absolutely correct that we are fighting for the same thing, but the system, right, separates us and then makes us fight for the same pot of money. Knock it off. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, we know when I say crabs in a pot, crabs in a barrel, I say it's like the crab theory. People look at me, especially non-Black people, because they don't know what that really means. And I think, and um, it's like, well, it means that as some are crawling out, out. right, you don't help you push them back to make sure that you get out and you kind of look back and go too bad for you, Joe, and you keep on going, right? That is not really helpful. And a lot of times, you know, I'll see people quoting, you know, our great leaders, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or Audre Lorde or Harriet Tubman, Frederick, you know, I could go on and on. And when I ask people, do you really understand what that means? Do you understand that from the context of the shoes that that person was walking in, mm-hmm. the life they had to walk in? They don't understand it. Yeah. You know, I don't expect them to understand it, right? Because the experience is quite different. But I, I sometimes just feel like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I do my podcast. I love my podcast. I love having these conversations with folks. And then sometimes I'm like, it's too big. We're never going to fix it all. Yeah. 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 Do you ever kind of get wondering how it's. Yep. Yes, 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 yes. And yes. And what I have found to be helpful when I'm, I'm feeling the weight of that, because I, I think that I feel that way when I'm on bigger stages, right? Like where we met, right. Mm -hmm. At that, at that federal level. But then when I go back to my little gem in Harlem, and, and so, Karis, I'm going to share with you how uh, this one moment, and I have chills as I'm talking about this, it lets me know that, yes, we can do this even one person at a time. Mm-hmm. So I put my boots to the ground, and that's like, I love when I have my boots to the ground. And so I went out to um, a park in Harlem that I did not realize when I went into that park that it had become an open site for for, uh, crack consumption. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, and I, I tell this out loud, it, that was my drug of choice. So my boots are now on the ground. I am out in this park and surrounding me are maybe 20, 30, maybe 40 people openly consuming crack. One side of my brain is going, oh man, I know what that must feel like to feel like you just have to do this. And you are out here in this park in the open, right across the street from children doing this. And then the other side of my brain is, oh, I know what that feels like, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so I'm, I'm standing in the middle, but I'm talking to them. I'm like, hey, when I'm out here, look out for me. You know, I'm here. I have Narcan kits. Do you know that, you know, fentanyl is in the, is in the drug supply. It's in the cocaine. It's in the crack. It's in the marijuana. Like I'm, I'm out there. I'm educating. I'm handing out kits. And, and the next day I went into my office and one of the men from that park was in my office before I was. Wow. He said, hey, I met you in the park. And he stayed with me in that office. He came and went for three days straight. And this was right before Labor Day weekend. He said, you know, um, this is the longest that I've been in Harlem and I haven't gotten high. When I went to the bathroom, this was the first time that I looked at my face in a mirror and saw what I looked like. Mm -hmm. And that's when I knew, okay, I can do this. Yes, it feels daunting when I'm on federal stages. Mm -hmm. Yes, it feels daunting when I'm talking to the the state system. But when I'm on the ground and a man walks into my office, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm making a difference. Yeah. So that individual uh, touch that lets me know that I'm making a difference. Yeah, that's exactly what I try to hold on to as well. And, um, you know, even with this podcast, it's kind of like, it goes out there and you never know what happens to it. Yeah. You know, I do ask people comment, share, you know, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's like, did it make a difference? Did anybody hear, did did somebody think something differently Mm -hmm. from what they heard? And um, yeah, I'll get a random email. It wasn't really random. No, it was random. I didn't expect it. And the person who is a I'll just say a high level person. I'll just put it that way. Said, I listened to that podcast, you know, and I didn't think of it this way. Mm-hmm. And I have to um, impact policy. I have to think about how we're going to take this kind of policy and implement it in our particular location. And she goes, I have to think about it totally a different way now. Wow. So it's like, okay, that's okay, yeah. cool. So, so, so it's like, okay, all right, you know, yeah. you know, boom, boom, you know. Yeah. So, and I'm yeah. like, do you want me to hook you up with that person who was talking on the podcast? You know, whatever. But it it is, it is um, you know, sometimes yes, it does feel daunting and overwhelming and you know, too big to fix. And my father always says, Well, Karis, you're not supposed to fix it by yourself. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like you take the world on your shoulders because we're so invested in it, you know, personally and, and invested passionate and passionate yeah. about this work. Yeah. yeah. So tell me more about um, the pillars and you know, we had talked about, you had two different organ. Do you have two different organizations or one? Help, help me. <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to remember I about. Um, because everyone gets confused about this because yeah. You know, I, yeah. I just be doing, I just be doing too damn much. Can I just say? Just, <laughs> yes, you can. That's right. I'm just doing. Um, so it's all under one umbrella. So let's talk safety Inc is the, you know, the, the fiscal arm of it all. Mm-hmm. And so on one side of it, we do prevention of the onset of use 
for teens and youth. And, and, and I really paused there for a reason because as the field talks about prevention, we don't talk enough about the prevention of the onset of use. And so what did Frederick Douglass say? You know, build a child and you don't have to heal broken men. And I know that I butchered that. So somebody will probably jump in the drop in the comments what the what it really is. But 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 that's true. And so it's it's built on, you know, bringing these young people to the table and they are civically engaged and then they come up with these brilliant ideas and we have these 12 sectors that come together and give them the resources to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So there's a beautiful mural in Harlem of their perception of Harlem past, present and future. And so how young people are self-actualized in the future, but they take a look at the 1920s and see this couple walking arm in arm uh, past some brownstone steps. And it morphs into color, looking at James Baldwin and Marcus Garvey and understanding their history and the roots. So. Mm -hmm. That's safe in Harlem. Okay. Yep. And then there's the pillars. And so the pillars is actual brick and mortar safe in Harlem. We do inside of schools and the pillars is non-medical and holistic approaches to recovery for people who choose that path. It is free yoga, meditation, acupuncture, Reiki, parenting skills classes, because we know every parent comes to the table with skills, right? And so how can we help to enhance what you have? We do uh, Narcan distribution. We have a clothing closet where people donate and other people come shopping. We have um, vocational trainings. We trained over 450 people in three years in a myriad of, of opportunities from OSHA training to security guard, home health aid, teacher's aid. And so you can hear the passion because yes. I absolutely love, love, love this work. And yeah. so people come in, we say, welcome home, welcome home. Um, yes. And we are one big family inside of that space. Even if you're walking in for the first time, we call you by your last name, right? Mr. Jones, welcome. You are respected in this space. Yes. I'm just so moved by it all. And it's not something that many people have access to. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask you a little bit about funding because how, when we try to do this work, it's like you have to justify it to, especially if it's government funding, right? Like, what do you mean you're doing Reiki? That's not an evidence-based practice for this particular thing. So we are not going to fund it. Um, you know, so then you have to find other types of funding and braid and mix and match. And because I'm sure people are like, yeah, that's nice. But how do you, how do you, how do you fund something like that for the uh, pillars, for the actual brick and mortar? Yep. So I'll start with the pillars. And so both arms are funded. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know how many people will say this, but I say this and I say it out loud often. I'm grateful to Oasis. And Oasis is our state, uh, single state agency that is over um, alcoholism. And they just changed their name, uh, the um, Office of Alcoholism Services and Supports. Mm -hmm. And so there, my grant that I wrote that I dreamed of what this brick and mortar should look like was selected. It was the highest performing grant in the borough um, at that time. 
And they were like, you know what, this, this was a great idea. Let's fund it. I, I will never forget where I was when I got the call from Oasis. And then I began to have the ability to take what was in my head theoretically and put paint on the walls to select the space to, to be able to actualize all of the things that I had the privilege, privilege of receiving when I went to treatment for my own addiction. So because I had this great insurance, I was in a sweat lodge and had acupuncture and, and yoga and meditation. I'm like, well, money should not be a barrier, mm-hmm. right? Insurance should not be a barrier. How do I bring these services back to the community that raised me and offer it to them for free? For free. And so God is all in that space, Karis, because every day someone walks through the doors and say, I don't know what brought me in here, but I was walking by. And you know what? I want to know how I can volunteer. Mm. And so most of the classes that we have are run by volunteers. Mr. Wong comes in three days a week and does Tai Chi, right? Miss Joyce and Osei does Reiki. So I don't have to pay those practitioners. I could not afford to pay those practitioners. Mm-hmm. So in the grant process that Oasis released, it was, what does recovery look like in your community? And I was like, you know what? Recovery looks like some, can I curse on you? I'm not going to. Yes, you can. It's explicit. Recovery looks like some shit that Black people are not used to being exposed to and receiving like Reiki. People are like, what's Reiki? I go, you know, um, you ever hear old Black ladies say laying hands on? That's what Reiki is. We've been doing this for years, for centuries, laying hands on a massage Mm. for your soul. So Mm. we get a chance to bring that to the people. Um, And and I'm lucky because through that Oasis grant, I get to pay the rent. I get to pay, and we are so (laughs) short-staffed. We are so we, you know, it, being funded is, 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 is gives me an opportunity to really understand what it feels like to be on public assistance because they give you just enough not to starve, but you ain't really well fed. Mm, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, wow. all of this is grant funded, but uh, it, I'm not starving but my belly isn't full either. Do you do you think it would change if it if it was something that was a a billable service? Do you know you know what I'm talking about? Like I, you know what I'm talking about? Like because I think I think I especially in our peer world, you know that the ultimate was oh we got to get the peer certification, and I was like y'all know that's going to mean you're going to be Medicaid billing, right? And somehow that kind of slipped people's mind, and then when it became the reality of wait we're going to be doing what? it started to eke into, does this match our value set and how we want to do our service provision, depending upon what service it is. Some services make sense, like maybe a hospital service, you're there for medical necessity if you're in a hospital generally. So maybe that might make sense to do that kind of documentation. Again, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, I'm just, you know, posing. So what do you think would, what, what do you think would happen if people said, yeah, we need to get consistent funding by using insurance or Medicaid as the mechanism to ensure that these services can always be offered and we can be reimbursed? Like, what would that do? So um, (laughs) this is a question that is on the table right now, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this it is a question that is on the table. And it's on the table, unfortunately, because the way that the funding mechanism is structured. So the recovery, there are 31 recovery centers across the state of New York. Some of us don't know, most of us don't know from one year to the next if the money is going to continue to come down the pike. And that is very uncomfortable. And then there are words that are thrown around in meetings going, well, you know, sustainability, what is your sustainability plan? Well, how can I have a sustainability plan if we have no revenue coming in? Donations, Mm -hmm. fundraiser. I mean, you know, some of us are more um, adept than others at fundraising, but for the most part, we don't even know if a year from now our doors would be open. So it's very uncomfortable. And so uh, to your to your question, um, I think that there is a way to marry the two systems. So for example, the gentleman that came in that I mentioned to you that I had met in the park, over the weekend, that uh, Labor Day weekend, he went out to, as I call, do more research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so unfortunately in his data gathering, in his research process, He came in that Tuesday and he had hospital bracelets on and, you know, he had some scars that, you know, it it was a rough lesson to learn. But he had the wherewithal at that moment because he had that little moment of, of recovery with us prior to doing more research that he called for himself to get picked up to go into treatment. Mm -hmm. So If in the system that we have, this recovery community and outreach system that we have, we had the ability to work with him where he was and build, because he he paid when he went to the treatment program and the outpatient program, but we had already built a trust with him, right? Right. So maybe in in an instance like that, where we can kind of keep someone close that we've built a relationship with and bill his Medicaid, for that, that's a path without uh, really upending the process for all the people that have been coming in for five years that want to get their free Reiki. So I think there's a way to marry the two. And so I guess I'm hearing the, you know, how do we create systems that work much better to meet people where they are with all of the things that they're already connected to, Yes. He said, I'm connected. I'm connected. Like who wants to be, who would, whether you have, let's say it's not mental health and substance use, who's going to make you leave your community. That's right. To get care. Who's going to do that. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, again, a very old fashioned kind of way of thinking about things versus how do we marry the two and make sure that everybody gets paid to do the work that they're Mm. doing to support people. So what I had the benefit of doing was talking to people in recovery, and most of them are using abstinence as their pathway. But having been in the park, among all of those individuals that are still using, I need to know their stories too. And to bring those stories forth, I want to know who were you, who loves you? Who were you as a child? Who were you before you met your drug of choice? When did you meet your drug? Where are you now? Where do you want to be? Not even five years from now, but tomorrow, 
a week mm-hmm. from now, a month from now. And so I am going out with, I bought this GoPro and it, it, anybody listening to this who knows me, probably chuckling because I am the least technologically uh, astute person that you could ever want to meet. But I have this thing that I think that I can use as a tool to gather these narratives. Mm-hmm because their voices are missing at the tables that you and I have the privilege of sitting. Right. And so how do we bring them forth? They are humans of New York too. Right. And I want to hear from them. I wanna know what am I not doing? Like to your point and working with this man from a point of like, I wanna help him. Like, tell me what we need to do. And we need yeah. to hear that from them. You, we are cut from the same cloth. So when Google Glass was the thing, I became a Google Glass explorer for the very same reason, because as a person who'd been given a diagnosis of schizophrenia, people had this belief of what that looked like, what that is. And it was a belief based on, you know, over the top, you know, TV dramas or movie, right? Not complete. Yeah, not complete narratives of a person's life. It was a moment in time of the symptoms that became the narrative of the diagnoses. And it's not, it's just a moment in time of what those symptoms look like. Could be a long period of time, but it's just a moment in time at the end of the day, right? There's this whole person and the whole thing happening with the person beyond the symptom thing. So I thought, let me get um, Google Glass and see how I can sort of chronicle what my day is like, and with permission, of course, mm-hmm. consent from people, what their days are like. And um, yeah, I did that until um, Google Glass kind of, yeah, well, we don't know where, anyway, we're not going to go there. So, um, <laughs> But I think, you know, I think this is it. I think, you know, again, you know, being able to bring the stories. And when I tell people I'm telling a story, and it might have something to do with, you know, my particular experience, I'll say, and now we're going to multiply that. Um, because I'm carrying the stories of so many with me, I'm able to tell my own because I know what happened, you know, in the, you know, whatever. And I can also, you know, tell other people's stories, but that's just so powerful because it's missing. It's, it's missing. I, I think to that point, you know, when, when I was sharing the research, when we were together um, uh, in DC, it was really the narratives that brought home all the data that I presented before it, right? Mm -hmm. The words of Nina and Frida and Douglas. I mean, hearing people say, you know, you got to know what caused the wound to fix it. And we've been brutalized in this country for so long that we believe that it's normal, right? Mm. I can't bring that forth in the way that their own words could. And Mm -hmm. I think that that was probably one of the most powerful pieces of the presentation was yeah here are their words exactly dr poland this is people that have been impacted for generations talking about the generational oppression that that is embedded in their dna and they still are carrying forth because mm-hmm. of racism so i have uh, about a minute <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> I know we could keep talking and talking and talking. Um, I want you to do some wisdom dropping. You've dropped like tons of wisdom as everybody does during our time of chatting, but I do um, want to give guests an opportunity to leave the listeners with one piece of golden nugget, all of it's golden of uh, wisdom dropping. So what wisdom do you have that you want to share? I think the one piece of wisdom that has just been um, life-changing for me is to find my passion 
and to turn that passion into my life's work, which is not something that I always did. So I asked myself, who am I passionate about? Where am I passionate about doing work? What work am I passionate about doing? And that was the platform that I built um, all of the things that I mentioned. So find your passion and uh, move forth with that, no matter what it is. So the who, what, where, when, and why. And uh, I have peace and happiness that I didn't have before. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I so, so appreciate it. And uh, for our listeners, you know what to do, like, subscribe, comment, (laughs) share. Most importantly, share, 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 share. All the other stuff is important so other people get access. Other people can get access to the podcast. But the most important thing is that you can do too, is just share with other people. So thank you so much for joining me. And yeah, for our folks, See you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.